Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you would, open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 14. I do have a few announcements I need to make real quick, but turn to John 14. Please join me there. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands to either keep or borrow. Raise your hand high and we'll get it to you soon. When you get that, you can join me in John chapter 14. Uh, Three brief announcements. Brief. Number one, to reiterate what Avery announced at the beginning, our Covenant Membership Seminar is a Friday night and Saturday morning opportunity for you to gather together with other people who are considering what it means to be a member of this church, the doctrinal basis for church membership, and more. And it's kind of kicking the tires and lifting the hood to see what makes our gospel preaching church distinct from other good gospel preaching churches in town. So uh, there's no obligation to join. just encourage you to come to that. Uh, Also, if you are a member of FCF, but have not gone through the membership seminar in the last few years, I'd encourage you to go. Uh, One, you'll get to meet other people who are considering joining our church family, but also a, um, I think, helpful refresher on what it means to be us. That's number one. Number two, I announced this last week, missional grants. So the applications for missional grants are open. You can reach out to Pastor Andy or Amy to get the application. Remember, missional grants is money that we have pooled together, uh, like a gospel mutual fund, to then disperse um, out through us to do gospel good and gospel proclamation in Flagstaff and beyond. And so the examples were uh, earlier this year, our own Martha Gushy, She did a missional grant, which was a neighborhood block party. People from church went and joined that, met her neighbors. There was a prayer booth, uh, tracks for kids, things along those lines. Uh, uh, In the past, people have bought trailers, built a shower on it, driven to homeless camps, showers for the homeless people, as well as evangelizing, adopting a um, Christian club at the local high school, providing pizza and Bibles for them. Really, it's pray about it and the the Lord will do amazing things through us. So missional grants are open. The last thing is not an announcement as much as it is just making you aware. uh, Both the Lamberts and I um, have an acquaintance who is a senior pastor in Sanibel Island where the hurricane just went through that decimated the island. And um, wanted to make you aware before the news cycle changes and you forget about the hurricane that there are good gospel-preaching churches that were decimated and devastated by the hurricane. And he sent out an email, just one saying there's there's ways to give to help people rebuild, but also prayer requests. And it was just struck me to think about if we had, say, a massive fire go through town or some some event cataclysmically took place that caused us to move, um, this would happen to them. He says to pray for safety and stabilization of our church members, we have a few unaccounted for. We don't know where they are. Uh, Many have relocated to Fort Myers. Uh, They're without power, potable water, or gasoline. He says, pray for housing for those who are displaced without a home, including my family and our three other staff families. He says, pray for our members as they mourn and struggle with emotional trauma of the storm's fury and realization that many of us have lost Every earthly good that we had. At this point, he says, he's, he, they have kids. He said, at this point, everything our family owns fits in his pickup truck. Um, and he says, pray for me to have wisdom, courage, empathy, and stamina as I lead and shepherd. I'm definitely finding the limits of my mental and emotional capacity at times. And their church situation was a difficult situation. It's a revitalization. So there was, there's problems and difficulties in the church. And one thing that really struck me, it's the last point I'll just share from his, his long email, is um, that they recognize that they're going to have to restore their church by establishing a new congregation. It, it basically be the equivalent of um, Flagstaff ceases to exist and we all go to Williams and then picking up what's left over or something along those lines. So that's what they're facing. So... So pray for the others. And there's other good gospel preaching churches in Sanibel, uh, but you can, you can pray for this church. If you desire to give, you can come see me and I can share the link to their church that's doing re- uh, hurricane relief with them. So I just wanted to share that with you so that you keep those affected by the hurricane in your prayers.
Well, let's turn our attention to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 14. And uh, our text this morning inches forward. Our focus is verses 19 to 24. But we will look back up to verse 15, which we briefly covered last time together. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up by reading verse 19 to 24, and then we'll pray. Jesus is in the middle of speaking, and he says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. This is the Lord's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, you've set your word before us. We are mindful that we have brothers and sisters down in southern Florida who are not able to gather this morning and to sit under the preaching of your word because of the devastation that you've providentially allowed to pass. We pray for your grace and your provision upon them, that your gospel would go forth deeper into them and through them to see the lost saved, and that you would provide for their needs. And Lord, we recognize that we are all needy, most of which spiritually, and so we pray that your word would provide by your spirit all the needs that we have that your word would accomplish all its purposes and more in us and through us so that it wouldn't return void, but that you would save the lost and strengthen our faith and draw us closer to the Savior. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. I would like us to consider... Two different people who um, say that they're Christians. And this is fictitious, but this is common. So the first is struggling with her faith. And with her weak faith and her faith struggles and her belief in Jesus struggles and her inability or difficulty in trusting the word, she just wants more concrete evidence to truly believe and she says that to you perhaps maybe she's connected to your life somehow and she says you know i just i need jesus to give me a sign i need to give him for him to give me concrete evidence and then i would really believe and then my faith would be really strong she says and she's honest and says that if he doesn't come through with the sign if he doesn't come through with something then she actually might leave christ and leave the faith We'll return to her. The other person I want you to consider who claims to be a Christian is a young man. He's at NAU. He claims to be a Christian. He was raised in a Christian home and he went to youth group. Um, And now he's in his third year there at the school. He's also convinced his girlfriend to sleep with him. He's falling behind in school due to his partying and drunkenness. And because he's falling behind in school, because of partying, he's also increasingly leaning into uh, covert ways of plagiarizing his papers and turning those in and, and also cheating on exams. But he shows up to church at least once a month and so tells his roommate who's a believer that he is a believer. We have these two people. And Jesus' word today in John 14 speaks to both of them, and it speaks to us. us. Jesus' word speaks to those of little faith, and Jesus' word speaks to those who are walking in disobedience to his word, as well as those walking in obedience to his word. Let's remember where we are. It's the farewell address, the upper room discourse. It's to the apostles. 
Jesus has washed their feet in the previous chapter. And he's continuing to explain to them that he's leaving. He's announced that he's going to be betrayed. This, from their perspective, is the worst news. They kind of know that he's going to be crucified or they know that he's going to die. Something is going on. Something foreboding is lurking in their minds, but they don't entirely understand it. They're troubled. They're perplexed. The news of him leaving is the worst. And so their faith is shrinking and they're in danger of not taking Jesus at his word. Like them, we too need faith to trust in Jesus' word, especially when it seems like the circumstances or even his actions in our life are contrary to what we would expect. Uh, We have this wrong-headed idea that Jesus is here to make our lives easier, and he's not. But he's here to save us and to carry us along. So like the disciples, we need faith that shows itself in loving obedience to Jesus rather than faltering or running away from him. And so this morning, Jesus' aim in our passage is to build your faith. To build your faith and build it out so that your faith would result in loving obedience just as he was doing for the disciples. Now, maybe this morning you you are investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe you've been away from him for a long time and you're coming back. I invite you to ask yourself, deep down, who or what you truly trust for security and satisfaction this morning? Deep down. Usually you see where your security and satisfaction rests when it's taken from you. So... Ask yourself where that is, and I want you to recognize this morning that Jesus is going to show you that he alone should be your trust for security and satisfaction. And for the rest of us, those of us who follow Christ, the questions before us are twofold. How will Jesus build out our faith like he's doing with the apostles? And how is Jesus going to move us towards loving obedience here in John 14, verses 19 to 24? And so to do that, Jesus is going to show us two realities of what it means to be his disciples. So if you're taking notes, here are the two points this morning. Number one, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he lives. That's verses 19 and 20. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he lives. And next, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must keep his word. And we'll glance up at verse 15 and then down to verses 21 to 24. Well, let's jump right in. Point number one, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he lives. Let's back up to verse 18 and get a running start down through verse 20. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, you read these words, and on the surface, we may not recognize that Jesus is doing a most unexpected thing with his words here as he speaks to the apostles. What Jesus is doing very subtle is he is not only putting faith into their hearts he is then drawing that faith out in belief what do i mean the centerpiece of these verses is the end of verse 19 where he says because i live you also will live now this of course is a veiled reference to the resurrection, right? The cross is a few hours away. His resurrection is a few days away. And so the disciples don't understand, but this is a veiled reference to his resurrection. Jesus will live. Jesus will die on the cross for our sins. He will be buried for three days, but then he will raise and appear to many. The disciples don't know that. They don't get it. From their vantage point, everything Jesus says And is saying, sounds like things are getting worse. Things are falling apart. 
And indeed, a few hours from now in our text, it definitely will look like things are falling apart and getting worse because Jesus will be betrayed by Judas and arrested. Jesus' followers will flee from him. There will be sham trials. Peter will deny Jesus. And then Jesus will be crucified. And then he will die on that cross. And then they will bury his body. And if we are like them, which we are, imagine what would happen to their faith. It would seem natural that questions would begin to well up in their heart. Was Jesus a fraud and a fake? They might begin, like you and I, we might begin to question, had we believed in Jesus to our embarrassment and shame? Was it all a lie? Their faith would be shaken to its core And Jesus knows this. He knows this is about them, and he knows this about you and me. Jesus knows that his gospel plan will succeed. And so Jesus prepares them beforehand by strengthening their faith, building faith in them. He is telling them beforehand, they're troubled now, they're going to get more troubled later, and he tells them beforehand, with these trials looming, So they would remember that because he lives, they will also live. But again, I said that these are the most unexpected words. It might seem pretty normal, this side of the cross for us as Christians, to say, well, of course he rose from the grave. Of course he lives. But here's what makes Jesus' words so shocking and unexpected, both for the apostles and for you. It's because of where Jesus locates the proof of what he's saying. So how will the disciples know that Jesus is telling them the truth? Well, it's verse 20. Because I live, you will live also. And the verse 20 says, In that day you will know. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. In other words, do you see where the location is of the proof? He's not locating it in that moment, in that upper room with him, because I live, you will also live, and then he does a sign right there. Now, of course, he's done many signs in the gospel so far. But when he says this, he doesn't back it up with anything other than having put a towel around his waist and washed their feet. He locates the proof of in that day then you will know. That's why his words are shocking and unexpected because if they are keen to what he's saying as he's trying to build their faith, not trying, he does, he puts his word into their hearts, but now he's saying, well, how do you know it's true that because Jesus lives, you will live because of in that day? So in other words, the disciples have to take on faith what Jesus says. And that faith will become sight when verse 20 happens, which from their perspective will be the resurrection three days later. But we have a different perspective. We were not present for the resurrection. None of us have seen Christ face to face or felt his embrace. That's what makes his words shocking and unexpected. He's locating the proof in his word. Let me explain. God did the same thing with Moses. Remember Moses? Remember Exodus chapter 3? He's on the mountaintop. He sees the burning bush that's not consumed. He walks up and the bush talks to him. The fire does. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. So he takes off his sandals. And then it's the Lord himself in the presence of the fire speaking to Moses, calling Moses to go deliver Israel from slavery to Egypt. And what does Moses say? No, thanks. You got the wrong guy, Lord. Moses keeps pushing back. And so Moses needs some confidence. Moses needs some assurance. Moses needs to believe God's word. Now, you might think that a voice coming from fire, from a bush, not consumed, would be sufficient for Moses to believe. It's not for Moses. But listen to what God says in Exodus 3.12. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be to be the sign for you that I have sent you. Pause. 
you might think then that he's going to do some further amazing miracle beyond the burning bush that's not consumed in his voice speaking out of the fire. He says, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you, Moses, that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Where is God's proof to Moses that God is with Moses all the way? It's when they get back to that mountain to worship. It wasn't in the ten plagues. It wasn't in passing through the Red Sea. It wasn't through the week or so that it took him to... Well, it took a long time to get there, actually. It wasn't there. God locates. You want to believe me, Moses? Here's the proof of believing me when you come back here in 40 years. Then you'll know that I was with you. Jesus is doing the exact same thing with the disciples in this moment. Because I live, you will live. In that day, you will know. The assurance then, what what proof will Jesus give to the disciples? Well, it's when Jesus rises from the grave, that's when they'll know. But for us, like Moses, and for them, and for us now, it hasn't changed. We live in a world where people want collateral to hold on a promise. We live in a world where people want down payments to prove that you're telling the truth. We want some type of proof up front, but not for God. Now, he has a good track record. But for God, the only proof that he gives up front is his word. Which means you're either going to believe it or you're not. You're going to take it and leave it. God gives his proof by giving his word and we are to believe his word in the face of circumstances that look the exact opposite of what we think he should be doing in that particular moment. The disciples didn't want Jesus to leave. The worst possible news they could be given and yet it was the best thing that could happen for the world. And that is the faith of the Christian life. In the same way the apostles needed to believe Jesus for his promised resurrection, we do too, both for believing his resurrection in the past and his promised second coming in the future. To, for you to be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he lives. God has designed our lives to work where you always need faith. There is never a moment of your Christian life where you don't need faith in Jesus and in God's word. It was true from the beginning with Adam, true all the way to the disciples, and it's true for us now. We must have faith in his word, which fundamentally is because he lives, we will live. So the question is for you, my friends, do you believe Jesus? And specifically, do you believe that he lives? Consider Romans 10, 9 through 13. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jews and Greeks, anybody. For the same Lord is Lord over all humanity, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, I want you to see this because it's how you became a Christian. Or maybe even today might become a Christian. It begins with us putting off and renouncing and repenting of our sins and confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing that he lives. Or in other words, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So for the Christian, we never move on from this belief. We stay in this belief. And because we believe Jesus lives, we will live too. That Jesus lived in our place, died for all of our sins on the cross, rose for our justification, ascended into heaven. Unlike the apostles, though, 
our faith has not been made sight yet, as I mentioned earlier. So the promise of eternal life in Jesus, we believe in his resurrection and his return. We believe that he lives, but we are waiting for our faith to become sight. Now, our faith is intelligent. It's not blind, but it is still faith. We always need faith. There is evidence to build out our faith on. So maybe this morning right now, you your faith feels weak or you're you're questioning. You're like the, the young woman I mentioned at the beginning who's doubting and she's asking for that sign from Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're considering Christ. You're not a Christian. You know you're not, but you're considering his claims. We all need to hear that our faith can be strong and ought to be strong. For example, behind us we have 2,000 years of a world trying to disprove and destroy Christianity. And yet here we are, alive and well. Or, for example, if you're a believer, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is in you personally, especially when in the face of trials you've persevered through. Not because you had the strength, but because Jesus gave you the strength. I am increasingly convinced that one of the evidences and assurances that we have as believers, no matter how weak we feel when you go through suffering, trial, or persecution, or more, and you come out the other side of that valley of the shadow of death, clinging to Jesus is proof positive of the Spirit in you. And the same is true for the evidence of people around you. It's when your friends and family and fellow members go through various types of sufferings and trials and you see them cling to Jesus in ways that the world would not and people would abandon, that's proof that Jesus is. So I think there's evidence for us to believe that Jesus lives, but also surrounding the resurrection itself, for example, The Romans and the Jews together were trying to destroy Christianity when it was getting off the ground. That's why they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus, they buried his body, and they placed guards at the tomb. So it's beyond reason that once Christians begin to claim they saw the risen Jesus, it's beyond reason that the Jews and Romans wouldn't produce Jesus' body and say, look, here's his dead body. Quit claiming to have seen and touched the risen Lord Jesus because here he is dead. But the Jews and the Romans couldn't produce his body because they didn't have it because Jesus was walking around eating barbecued fish with his disciples. Or also we can have that strong faith in the historical claim that not just the disciples, it wasn't just 11 people who claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus, but hundreds upon hundreds saw the risen Lord Jesus. And they proclaimed that good news. And they all eventually faced extreme persecution of themselves personally, of their loved ones, of their livelihoods, having to flee Jerusalem. So if the apostles had stolen Jesus' body, and they all knew it since they all claimed to have seen the risen Lord Jesus, It flies in the face of all human reason that not a single person, just one of the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds would crack and break to rescue their child from persecution by saying, okay, it's a a lie, we made it up. Peter and John stole the body. It's over there in the bushes. No one cracked because there was nothing to crack. It was all true. They believe the explosive power of a new worldview of all those who said they saw and heard and touched the risen Lord Jesus. They believe. So it flies in the face of reason that all of these people would be persecuted so extremely if it was just a lie. So again, all that is true and more we could say. But listen, the point is the realities strengthen our faith, but our faith nonetheless remains in Jesus and his word. So those examples I gave you can supplement and strengthen, but at the end of the day, we still believe Jesus. So the girl then, the young woman I mentioned at the beginning, who's just wanting Jesus to give her a sign, 
What she needs is not a sign. She needs faith in Christ's word. Her faith is weakening because she's placing her faith in the wrong thing. Give me a sign when Jesus says, no, your faith is in what I said. Believe what I said and there's where your faith will grow. As I said, you you might be a believer, but your faith feels weak. Your love feels cold. I, I want you to recognize that Scripture tells us in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith is transmitted to us and given to us and strengthened as we hear the word of Christ. That's not just for getting saved. It's for growing in Christ. In other words, if your faith is weak, go back to his word, which is where faith comes from and strengthens us. Turn to the word. And with the promise of his word, Jesus is doing the same thing for us now as he is doing with his apostles then. Putting faith in us, believing that he lives so that we will live too. And again, the question is, do you believe that Jesus lives? And if so, friend, you will live too. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he lives. You must have faith. And not only that, but to be, to next, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must keep his word. Point number two, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must keep his word. Look with me at verse 15, and we'll jump down to verses 21 and following. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 15. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These verses, these four verses are perhaps the strongest ethical section in all the gospel of john in other words jesus is revealing that gospel believing that was the first point believe that he lives and you will live gospel believing always leads to gospel living gospel believing leads to gospel behaving if you don't believe the gospel you won't live in keeping with the gospel or behave in keeping with the gospel. Jesus is indicating that faith in Jesus always produces fruit for Jesus. What do I mean? Four times in this short section, Jesus provides the simplest and in my mind, most profound test and proof of being a disciple of him, of being a true Christian. Verse 15, see if you can notice the similarity and repetition of what he says. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. This is as black and white as you can get with Jesus. Jesus repeats himself four times, three in the positive, one in the negative. What's going on here? What is Jesus saying? I want to give you three points of clarification before we move in to the implications of what he is saying. Three points of clarification, ways that we could misunderstand what he's saying. Number one, We always have to be reminded that we are saved by grace through faith, not works. If you would, join me in Ephesians chapter 2. 
When you get to Ephesians chapter 2, join me in verse 8. Ephesians 2, 8. We're going to be here for a little bit, so I'd like you to have your eyes on this text. When you hear Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, you might misunderstand him to be saying that you have to do things in order to be saved. You might misunderstand him to say that, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so if we, well, I guess if we keep our, his commandments, we'll be in good standing with him. So you might be confused thinking that we need to do works to be saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, grace and faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in no way is Jesus to be misunderstood to be saying that you need to do stuff. And be good at obeying in order to earn salvation and earn eternal life. You cannot earn eternal life. But Jesus did for us on our behalf. In other words, Jesus worked on our behalf. Jesus, who was without sin, but like us in every way, lived in our place and for us, died on the cross for our sins, buried for three days, and rose from the grave. We believe in Jesus' work on our behalf, not our own. We are saved as a gift. We are saved by grace, and we're saved through believing in that grace. That was the first point. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So no, Jesus, when he talks about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he is not talking about how you get saved. He's not talking about how you get rescued from eternal wrath and hell. But Jesus is talking about what happens after you're saved. He's talking about, so to speak, Ephesians 2.10. Right? We just read verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Okay, that's getting saved. Okay, I'm saved. I, I believe in Jesus. I've repented of my sins. But what does Ephesians 2.10 say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when the gospel says that when we believe in Jesus, we're going from death to life and darkness to light, it's all Jesus and not us. But when you get saved, you get behaved. When you get saved... We're actually created for good works. The gospel actually bears fruit. The Holy Spirit's presence in your life actually bears fruit in your life. And so we are saved apart from works for works. And there's an infinite chasm between the two. Jesus and Paul and Ephesians are not talking about how to get justified with God. They're talking about what sanctification looks like. Good works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith, right? You see the picture? You have the the tree and the soil. The roots take up the nutrients. And so the nutrients from the roots are what produces the fruit on the tree. It is wrong to think that good works are the root that gets me saved. Faith is the root of... And then works are the fruit. So good works or obedience to Jesus' word is evidence of faith in our life. That's the first point of clarification. Please don't misunderstand Jesus to be teaching these four times in this section. When he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's telling you how to get saved. He's talking about what it looks like when you are saved. Second point of clarification Remember 1 John 4.19. Remember 1 John 4.19, which simply says, We love because He first loved us. We love the triune God because He first loved us, and we love the brothers and sisters because He first loved us. It is never ever true 
It's never true in the Bible that we first loved God, so then he responds to us with his love. God did not look into the future and see that you would love him, and then he chose to love you. No, we only love because of the prior love of his first love. So, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, you could also misunderstand him to say that, well, okay, I need to conjure up these emotions and some affections for Jesus, then Jesus will love me. That's not what he's teaching either. That's not where he's locating this. It's never true. God always is the initiating, empowering love. God loves us first. And the third point of clarification, what in the world is going on when Jesus says these huge ethical words four times in this text, the third point of clarification of what he's doing, this is covenant-making language. You'll notice that in the other three gospel accounts, Jesus, at the Last Supper, ratifies the new covenant through cracker and cup with the disciples. He doesn't do that in John, or John rather doesn't record that. Actually, John does. This is John recording it. He's not recording the eating and drinking portion. What this language is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In the Bible, a covenant, think, is like a marriage relationship. A divine covenant in the Bible is God enters into a relationship with humanity. You cannot have a relationship with God without a covenant with God that he initiates. And the divine covenants involve responsibilities on both parties. God promises to bless his people and his people are obligated to respond in faithful covenant obedience. We looked at that word some time ago, chesed, the Hebrew word of faithful, loyal love. It's covenant-keeping love. In other words, when Jesus says four times, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, this is him making the new covenant with his disciples through the version of the Gospel of John. Three clarifications. Now, our text then. Jesus is saying that those who believe in him, our first point, also love him. And those who love him will always keep his word. Indeed, love and obedience are so closely related in Jesus' mind here that the passage, in this passage, are almost synonymous. So let's, let's start getting this real practical for you in your walk with Jesus. Get this real practical for you in your friendships with other Christians and family members. The word keep that Jesus uses four times is important. It's, it's a word that describes the guards who were placed at the temple, or temple, the tomb of Jesus. The Hebrew version is what Adam was told in the garden to work it and keep it. And now Jesus is saying that we're supposed to keep his word, keep his commandments. The word can be translated as guard, right? Sword is drawn, shield is ready. I am protecting this. It can mean to, well, also protect, to shield, and it means to obey. So it's not just a matter of um, no longer telling lies or no longer stealing but being generous. There's an element of keeping and guarding the, the, the sacred treasure that the word is. So a Christian cannot say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, and not guard Jesus' word. A Christian cannot say, I love Jesus, and not protect Jesus' word. And a Christian cannot say, I love Jesus, and not obey Jesus' word. I think the Apostle John helps by providing commentary for us a couple of places in 1 John. We're going to look at two passages. In 1 John chapter 2, listen to this. this. He's beginning to give tests to you personally to know that if you actually walk with Christ, if you actually love Jesus. I think John is providing commentary on John 14. In 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, listen to this. By this we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep Jesus' commandments. There's the first test. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep 
Jesus' commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Jesus. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. That's John providing the explanation of what Jesus means when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You see, holiness matters in the life of a Christian. Obedience matters in the life of a Christian. Keeping Christ's word matters in the life of a Christian because first and foremost, it's a demonstration of our love for the Savior, but it's also demonstration to us, it's that fruit, those good works that show that we are in Christ. To be a Christian is not merely to be one in name. You are not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You are not a Christian because your uh, grandparents are Christians. You are not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian necessarily because you were baptized. You are a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith reveals itself in works. You're not a Christian because you do works, but Christians reveal works. To claim to be a Christian and characteristically not keep Jesus' word, not care about Jesus' word, is to show that you're actually probably not a Christian and may very well be fooling yourself. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Those are powerful words. He's about to explain to us what someone could deceive us about and not deceive us about. Little children, this is 1 John 3, beginning in verse 7. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a black and white, clear, simple, profound, strong line that Jesus draws both in John and 1 John. The key phrase in what I just read from 1 John 3 is the key phrase is makes a practice of. It's being characterized by a person who says they are a Christian but makes a practice of sinning and doesn't truly care about their sin, doesn't truly repent of their sin, shows they're likely a false convert. The true Christian, on the other hand, the true Christian makes the imperfect practice of righteousness. In other words, Jesus designed a world in which there's sanctification. Jesus designed a world, it's God's gospel plan, that when we believe in Jesus, we're not immediately glorified. So we have remaining sin until we are brought into the presence of Christ. That means that all of us will be struggling against sin all of our life. So it's not our perfection, it's Jesus' perfection. Nonetheless, the call in the Christian life is to practice righteousness, we just read. To do what Jesus does. So the difference here is a true Christian wants holiness lives in holiness, there is the fruit of the Spirit in their life, and when they sin, they hate their sin, they see their sin, they repent of their sin, and they ask God to cause them to walk in His ways and no longer their sinful ways. 
From the perspective of speaking the truth in love, this passage is one of the most helpful and loving to give a friend, to give a roommate, to give to anyone. This is one of the chief ways to speak the truth in love is that there's someone in your life who claims Jesus, but is characterized by willfully living a life breaking Jesus's words and commandments. This is where you can open the text and say, would you be willing to read what Jesus says here? And have him read those, those four passages. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he who does not love me does not keep my commandments. And then you can ask them, what does Jesus think about how you keep his word or not? And let the word do the work. It may be that someone is simply ignorant. They don't know that what they're doing is breaking Jesus' commands. They, they may not know the centrality of the church. Uh, they may not know that um, they shouldn't forsake the assembling of themselves together. They may not know, well, many things. So it's a discipleship issue. You're able to open the word and walk them through the book of Ephesians to help them understand what Christ's ethic is for the life of a believer. It may be that they're prodigal. That they don't want Christ's word. They really are regenerate, but they leave. And it may be that they are a false convert. But this is one of the best passages I have found in my life to invite a person to read and then ask them how they think Jesus evaluates their love for him. This is about addressing dishonest business practices. The boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together. The unloving husband. The neglectful husband, the dripping faucet wife, the parents who don't raise their children in the fear and love of Jesus. It's the Christian church skipper. It's the angry man. It's the manipulative woman. It's Christians who accept the world's views on abortion and sexuality and gender and marriage. And the list goes on. Either Jesus will be your God or you will be your God. And it all comes down to love, repentance, and obedience. A person's true allegiance will either be revealed to Jesus and his word or someone or something else, really themselves, self-deification. And a person's true allegiance and response will be revealed in how they respond when confronted to Jesus' words. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. There is zero middle ground. There's, there's zero neutral space in those areas. So at the beginning, I mentioned the guy. What will he do then if you were to confront this Christian roommate at NAU when you confront him with his, the word about him sleeping with his girlfriend and getting drunk and cheating on his exams? Here's a choice to make before him. Repentance to Christ or resistance of Christ. Now, when you say these things, there's also two types of hearts in this room. There's more, but I want to address two. The first is the Christian who is unrepentantly unca- and uncaringly living in sin. You, you're hearing these words and you're not keeping Jesus' word. And what you're showing is right now you love your sin more than you love Christ. And so with stern grace, Jesus is calling you to repent of your sin and renounce it now. To to not be unequally yoked with the unbeliever, but to break that relationship up. Whatever it is. To you, Jesus says, you do not love him. And you have no part in him unless you repent and walk faithfully. His words are stark and stern, but his words are true and can be and are grace in your life to rescue you from you you and your sin and to come back to Jesus. So friend, don't be prodigal. Don't be unbelieving. Turn to Jesus. But there's another person I want to address in here, and this is many of us. This is the person where you, you truly Love Jesus. Deep down in your bones, etched on your soul, you love the Lord Christ, King Jesus. You believe that he lived in your place, died for your sins and rose. And you begin to look at your life and you look at the fruit in your life and you look at these good works that we read of and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and you look and you inspect and you see in your life 
more losses than wins when it comes to obedience to Jesus. Frankly, deep down, you feel like and think that you are a lousy Christian. You, you, you think that in your personal struggle against sin, you, you just give in far more than you resist. And so then you hear these words of Jesus and you begin to doubt your salvation because I, I think I love Jesus, but maybe my love is lukewarm and, and I don't think I'm good at keeping his commandments. And so then you begin to just think this low-grade notion in your mind that I, I fall so short so often I must not love Jesus. I mean, I don't like my sin. I hate it. I feel stuck in it. I wish someone would get me out. And you pray, Jesus, get me out of these cycles of sin I get into. Listen, dear Christian, you need to hold that distinction that John gave us in 1 John. The habit of unrepentant practice of sinfulness and the habit characterized of repentful righteousness. Please understand that your desire to love Jesus, your desire to keep his word, your hatred of falling short is itself evidence that you truly love Jesus and want to keep his commandments. And it's evidence of his love for you and the gift of his spirit in you because only people who have the spirit of Christ in them are concerned about their disobedience to Christ. And it's in knowing this that then strengthens us to do those good works and obey his commandments and to excel at putting off lying and putting off sinful anger and putting off stinginess and theft and putting off um, 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 sinful words and more. Just thinking through Ephesians 4 right there. Be comforted about Jesus and what he says here, that his spirit is in us. Think back to last week's message. And we all need to see that the biblical love for God is inseparable from obedience and action. You cannot forget that just a few verses above, the end of chapter 13, Jesus laid aside his outer garments, put on the towel, washed their feet, and then he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, we might think that's a sentiment. I am now commanding you to feel a certain way for others. That's not what he says in 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Keeping Jesus' word means obeying the whole thing. It means doctrinal and practical. Doctrine just means teaching. We believe what Jesus teaches And we do what Jesus says. So church, this is a call for self-examination. Do you have faith in Christ that leads to love for Christ, which shows itself in repentance and imperfect obedience to Christ? An amazing thing is the end of verse 23. The result of faithful and fruitful loving obedience to Jesus, he says, and my father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Jesus will develop that more in chapter 17. The joyful irony that he tells the apostles right here about loving him and keeping his commandments is Jesus just told them in verse 3, I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and take you to myself. But then here in 23, he's saying, the Father and I, we're going to take up residence along with the Holy Spirit in you, the triune God dwelling in us. Church, we must never lose the wonder that God's aim in the gospel is to make his home with us in a people who love him and walk in his word. And because God indwells us, that motivates us to that loving obedience to Christ, beginning with loving one another. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe that he is and you must keep his word. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen us to keep it. We pray for your grace to motivate us and to move us. And that, Lord, we would cherish both our justification in Jesus, his righteousness given to us by faith, but also the gift that new life in Christ actually lives differently. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would save the lost, bring back the prodigal, strengthen those of us with weak faith, and for all of us, that the love of Christ would constrain us and compel us to walk in his ways. We pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. Friends, we're going to please stand with me as we sing this song, and then Elder Scott Porter will come up and lead us to the Lord's table in a moment.